I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. I want to welcome my guest today to The Literary Life, Ruth Behar teaches anthropology at the University of Michigan. In fact, she's the Victor Chaim Pereira Collegiate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan, and she's the recipient of MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships. And I cannot tell a lie. I've known Ruth for over 30 years, probably closer to 40 years. Uh, I'm much older than Ruth. Ruth is in Ann Arbor, where she teaches, and I'm here in Miami. And Ruth, I wanted to welcome you, but I wanted to start by by uh, basically reading something in your own words. This is what Ruth has written. Um, Ruth says, I was born in Havana, Cuba, and when I was five, I came to live in the United States with my parents and my little brother. My grandparents had left Poland and Turkey for a better life in Cuba and had to uproot not once but twice. Settling in Queens in New York City, I grew up in the 60s and 70s in crowded rental apartments, a long subway ride from Manhattan's bright lights. My parents longed to buy a house with a front yard where my mother could paint petunias, but we were refugees and short on money. And in the back of their minds, my parents thought we'd return to Cuba someday. Like so many other Cuban immigrants of that era, my parents thought our stay in the United States was only temporary. 
Surely we hadn't lost Cuba forever, but it turned out we had. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you for that introduction. It's so beautiful. It's such an honor to be on The Literary Life and to have this conversation with you. I'm sorry I can't be in Miami with you and hope I will be soon. Um, thank you so much. Well, you know, there's so much we can talk about because um, you at one time described yourself, and I love it, as an anthropologist who specializes in homesickness. And that, in, that basically uh, guided much of your early writing of books, I think, right? Um, you wrote, um, let's see, you wrote Translated Woman, Vulnerable Observer, An Island Called Home, and Traveling Heavy. And then you went on to write children's books, which also, I think, covers the same kind of territory, Broken Girl. And then you have a new one, which will be debuting in just about a month or so, a few weeks, called Letters from Cuba. You know, when I think of somebody kind of of the book or who leads a literary life, the name Ruth Behar comes right to mind. So, so we're using the excuse, Ruth, of talking a little bit about a new book that just came out called Handmade in Cuba, Rolando Estevez and the beautiful books of Ediciones uh, Vigia. And um, this really, I think, pulls together so many of your interests. And it was also one of the first things that interested you. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking more than you are. It's more of a dialogue, <laughs> but I mean, more of a monologue. But I just love you and your work so much. I could talk about you, you alone forever. So let me engage you in this as well. So you came over when you were five. Um, Talk about that and talk about what it was like to be Jewish and Cuban and coming over as well. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Yeah, so we came over to the United States when I was five. We left Cuba after the Bay of Pigs invasion. My father made the decision to leave almost overnight. We left a few weeks after, which was, that was April 61. We left in early May. And um, at that time, the U.S. Embassy had closed, so we actually went to Israel first, and that's a part of the story I don't all, all, always tell because it just adds a little bit more complication to the story, and not everybody wants to hear you know, every single element of my immigrant journey. So we left via Israel, and the interesting thing is we stayed in Israel for a year. My mother um, had an uncle, my great-uncle Jaime, who was the co-founder of a kibbutz near Tel Aviv. It had been founded by three um, Latin American Jewish guys. And he was one of the three. So we went to live on this kibbutz because we actually couldn't come straight to the United States because the U.S. Embassy had closed and my parents didn't have passports. So they had never left Cuba. So we went to Israel. We went and lived on a kibbutz for a year, which was kind of crazy because we were escaping socialism in Cuba, and then we went to this other kind of socialism in Israel. We were there for a year, and then finally we landed in New York, and we went to with New Israeli, York. With Israeli passports? I don't know if we had Israeli passports. We might have. We probably did. I think by that point, there was a friend of the family that was able to sign the affidavits and whatever needed to be signed for us to be able to come to the United States, but probably there was some some legal so, thing that made so, it easier. So why New York and not Miami? Yeah, so I'm about to tell that part of the story. So my Aunt Sylvia, my mother's older sister, 
had married an Americano. We always called them El Americano, the American. He was an American Jew from the Bronx, my Uncle Bill. He had gone to Cuba in the mid-1950s. He'd gone to Havana, and he was wandering around old Havana, and he ended up in a store that had a mezuzah on it. You know, the, you know everybody knows what a mezuzah is. It's a, you know, like a good luck talisman um, usually placed on the doors of Jewish homes and businesses. So my uh, Uncle Bill was roaming around Havana, entered the store, saw the mezuzah that caught his eye, went in and talked to my great uncle Moises and said something like, you know, I'm a Jewish guy from New York and do you know any Jewish girls? And he said, yeah, my niece. <laughs> and so he introduced Moises to my aunt Sylvia. They married um, in late 1956 and moved to New York. Um, so we went to New York because my aunt Sylvia, my mother's older sister, uh, was living in New York in Queens. And by that time, my maternal grandparents had moved to New York as well. They were in Brooklyn. My uh, Aunt Sylvia and Uncle Bill were in Queens. Then we arrived and went to Queens to live where my aunt and uncle lived. So basically it was going to New York because we had this Americano in New York who could show us the way because we didn't view ourselves as, you know, as American in any sense. We were, we were the Cubanos. My parents didn't uh, speak much English at all. And, um, and I think it's curious that before I spoke English, I was a Spanish speaker, which is my native language, and then I spoke Hebrew for a year, and then I arrived in New York and um, began to speak English. And that was really difficult for me, and that's one of the things I remember most vividly about the immigrant experience was how hard it was for me at first to learn English. And um, Lucky Broken Girl, my first children's novel, begins with, um, with a scene where Ruthie uh, has been placed in the quote-unquote dumb class because she doesn't speak English well enough. And that was based on, on me. And I remember the difficulty in being placed uh, in a class with the slow learners, with the misbehaved children. And it was all because I couldn't speak English. This, is, this was a time before we appreciated bilingualism. And, um, and the idea was to get me to stop speaking Spanish as quickly as possible. <laughs> well, you know, from, from the other... I grew up in Miami, and around that time, when kids were coming over who couldn't speak English, they were often putting them in classes, which must have been very frustrating for them, based on their level of being able to speak English. So it wasn't necessarily slow learners, but you'd find older kids in second grade, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. which must have been really, really frustrating for some of these kids who came over only because they couldn't speak English very well. And they were, they thought that if they put them in lower grades, that it would be easier for them to learn. Uh, they didn't quite think of the holistic nature of what the student would be like. Um, yeah. I mean, imagine thinking that a child isn't smart because they happen to speak another language. Right. Instead of going, wow, this child has a lot to offer. This that already has another language or sometimes two languages. Right. And now they're going to learn a second or a third or fourth. And let's let's like really congratulate this child. And instead it was like, no, this this is a child that you know that we have to treat as, as less smart. You had an experience that you write about and you've written about uh, you want to talk about that, about the time you spent a year basically out of commission and what that did for your love of reading and how that yeah. made you a reader in a sense? 
Absolutely. Um, so that's my novel, Lucky Broken Girl, that came out three years ago. Um, and it's precisely about that. So, you know, sometimes you have to think about as a writer, what, what are the unique things that happen to you? So being a Cuban immigrant and a Cuban Jewish immigrant, that's unique in a way, not, not everybody's got that background. But with me, it was being a Cuban Jewish immigrant plus ending up in a terrible car accident uh, soon after we arrived in New York and um, being in a body cast uh, for a year, which was a horrible experience, as you can imagine, a very, very bad break to my femur and uh, a doctor, which I am so grateful for, who was very concerned about me, this immigrant girl with immigrant parents who could barely speak English at that time and saying, you know, she's going to need to be in bed for, for months and maybe for a year. And my parents and my uncle Bill again, shocked and going, no, 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 put her in a, put her in a walking cast. Why does she need to be in bed for a year? And the doctor was like, no, we need to do this because the legs need to grow evenly. And if we have one leg in a cast and the other leg not in a cast, the legs aren't going to grow evenly. And even the slightest difference in growth between the two legs will mean that, that this girl will end up with, with a terrible limp. Um, and, you know, we see people like that all the time who have an extra heel or something in one of their shoes, but they have that terrible limp. And that's what would have happened to me. But the doctor was insistent and it was just the doctor that happened to attend to me um, in the emergency room who decided uh, to put me, um, after I was in traction for a week, decided to put me in this body cast that had a pole between the two legs so that my mother could turn me, flip me over and turn me on my stomach because otherwise I was on my back, uh, lying flat on my back all day with just some pillows to hold up my, um, my neck because the, the, the cast came up the two legs and around, around the stomach. Um, so it was a real body cast. I truly couldn't move. And so it was terrible. And of course I was miserable and I had to be taken care of by my mother and, and, you know, couldn't get up and shower or go to the bathroom. My mother had to take care of me. Um, but my public school in New York, which was really amazing, um, a very working class neighborhood in Queens, they were very upset about what had happened to me. Very sad. I had a wonderful fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Rolnick, I'll never forget. And, um, and she said, no, we, we've got to do something for you. We can't just let you be in bed for a year. Um, and they managed through the public school system to send a tutor um, to the house. Oh, and yeah. I had my own teacher who would come and teach me by my bed and would bring me stacks of books. We also didn't have a lot of books in the house because, you know, my parents couldn't afford to be buying books. Um, and so she brought me books. She, I remember she brought me highlights magazines, you know, I had like my own highlights magazines and, and then, you know, taught me math and my English of course improved because I was working one-on-one -on -one with this teacher. And I entertained myself by reading books because I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't play with the other kids. You know, I was just in bed. <laughs> um, and so, so I really became a reader, I, I think, during that time period. And the whole family remembers me at that time. And they all say, this is when you changed. With, this is when you became this, this other Ruth, you know, that I had been a different Ruthie as a little kid, a very, you know, boisterous, jumpy little girl. And then afterwards, my brother remembers this too, and he's three years younger than me. And afterwards, I became much more contemplative and sedentary, also a little afraid to move. Um, I was a little afraid of hurting myself again. 
So I was also more cautious. Do you remember some of the books you read during that period? I do. It's funny. I read a lot of adventure books. I think maybe because I couldn't move, I was really intrigued by adventure. And I remember reading books like Treasure Island. Mm. And I read all of the Nancy Drew books I loved. I think like a lot of kids, I loved mysteries at that time. And I read all the Nancy Drew books and kind of imagined myself as a kind of, you know, little, little Nancy Drew also. Um, so those are the ones that I remember most vividly reading as kind of my fun reading apart, you know, apart from whatever the teacher was having me read. But, um, but I loved, loved mysteries. I read some Sherlock Holmes at that time too. And, and I think that may be when that, that anthropologist in me may have been born as well, because I think precisely because I couldn't move, there was this dream that one day I would travel and I would move and I wouldn't be stuck in one place. So I think that may have been, that's the seed for that traveler that I became may have been planted um, at that time. Well, you went on to uh, grow up in New York City um, and then you went off to school. Where did you go to, where did you go to college? I went to Wesleyan University uh -huh, sure. in Middletown, Connecticut. And the most wonderful thing about having gone there, I mean, we didn't coincide, but Lin-Manuel Miranda went oh, really? to Wesleyan. Wow. <laughs> so it must be a very good school. Oh my gosh, it's my parents calling. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Always important when they call. Mommy, todo bien? Gracias. No, sí estaba, pero ahora estoy en, en una entrevista. Ah, ok. Pero todo bien, todo te no, fue bien. Te, te llamo en un ratico. Bye. That's my sweet mother. I just heard my mother talk to me right now, but you know, my, my parents are so incredibly Cuban. I mean, they, they left in their mid to late twenties. Well, the point that I was going to make a personality, the point that I was going to make, which I have also found are those Cubans who came over because they left the war, either world war one or world war two, and they weren't necessarily born in Cuba. Um, and then they left, you know, because of Castro, they, thought of themselves as Cuban, not mm -hmm. as hyphenated people. Mm -hmm. the, the new book, um, Letters from Cuba, this is the one coming right. out at the end of August, which is this new novel based on my maternal grandmother's story. So, so this is speaking about that grandparent generation that went to Cuba in the 20s and 30s in the period between the two wars, when things were getting really difficult for, for Jews in Europe. And they got to Cuba, they had been accustomed to anti-Semitism, right? And they got to Cuba and they were in a place where they weren't hated just for being Jewish. And plus you had the whole, you know, tropical feeling of Cuba, you know, the, the, the sort of the beauty of Havana, the music, the humor that Cubans have, and just kind of a whole way of living that was so incredibly, I don't know what to call it, joyful, I guess, joyful compared to what they had experienced, particularly in Poland and Russia, particularly those immigrants that were escaping pogroms and escaping terrible anti-Semitism and escaping, you know, the growth of Nazism that was, of course, going to lead to the war in 1939. I mean, all of those people were escaping that very dark, grim life that they had um, experienced in Europe, and then they got to Cuba, and it was it was there was this joy, this sense of joy in in everyday life, and and I think that's something that that whole generation 
took with them. And what I find so interesting about my family and other members of the Cuban Jewish community, the ones who actually stayed in Cuba and expected to stay in Cuba forever, because they were expecting to stay in Cuba forever. In the mid-1950s, they built an enormous Jewish community center in Havana that we call El Patronato, and it takes up a big city block in the new part of Havana, and it was inaugurated in the mid-1950s, and they thought they were staying in Cuba. They loved Cuba because many Jews went to Cuba with the idea of then coming over to the U.S., right, using Cuba as a kind of trampoline to come to the U.S. because the United States had imposed quotas on the number of people that could immigrate to the United States in, after 1924. They had these very strict quotas, so they couldn't come to the U.S., but they had heard often, you know, just rumors, because this is a pre-internet age, they had heard that if it, they could just get to Cuba, it was so close to the United States that they could practically swim over. You know, that was, that was what they heard in the Yiddish press and so on. And my maternal grandmother, who this book Letters from Cuba is about, she, you know, she was still in Cuba, so she got out later. They were born in Poland and Russia, so their, their immigrant status was different from my parents' immigrant status. So, so we couldn't all leave, say, you know, all get on one flight and go, it, you know, we, we left at different moments, but all of us by 1962, when we arrived in New York, by then my maternal grandparents were there, you know, my aunt and uncle and several cousins. And then my father's family, they, um, they are Sephardic Jews, um, originally from Turkey. My father's parents were originally from Turkey, but centuries ago from Spain as, as you know, Sephardim, as Sephardic Jews, they left a little later, they left via Jamaica and then eventually made it to New York. So everybody had a slightly <laughs> different way of getting to New York, but New York was the place that brought us together. And then the interesting thing is that by the late 70s, half of the family said, we don't want to stay in New York in this horrible cold weather. Let's go down to Miami. And so then half of the family left. And I remember my parents discussing it and thinking about it. Well, should we go to Miami too? And and um, and my parents were were just very into New York, and they they decided not to leave. But half of the family went to Miami. My maternal grandparents retired in Miami Beach, and from the time I was in high school on through college, I was always visiting them on West Avenue uh, in Miami Beach and walking over to Lincoln Road and going to Books and Books on Lincoln Road when you know when that be became available and. So, you know, I had a lot of Miami and Miami Beach experiences as well, just to add that in. Um, also, because from the time I was about 12, my parents started vacationing in Miami Beach, but because they didn't have a lot of money, we would never go in the winter. We would go in the summer, like, you know, the exact time when the Americans, as, as they would say, you know, the Americanos would never go to Miami in the summer, but that's when we would go because the hotels were cheaper and we would go to the surf comber and stay for a week or two. And that just seemed like the most incredible vacation ever. And I remember going to the Cuban restaurants and having that whole sort of Cuban Miami experience as a kid and just thinking it was so magical compared to New York, which felt so dark and gritty in the subway. You know? It just, it didn't have like the charm 
of Miami. And it may be that, you know, that I fell in love, you know, with Miami. Um, and then that led me to, to want to go back to Cuba as well. Rediscover your own Cubanness in a sense. Rediscover my own Cubanness. I mean, I had the Cubanness in New York as well because my parents hung out with other Cuban Jews and with other Cubans, not necessarily always Jewish. So they had a group of Cuban friends. And when I think back to even today, but to my childhood and youth, I mean, all of my parents' closest contacts were other Cubans or Latinos. You know, they didn't hang out much with regular Americans except for my Uncle Bill's family. You know, those were really the only Americans that, that were their friends. Um, so, so I think that's curious that it took them a while to assimilate and to, to feel comfortable. And they were kind of always, in a sense, the immigrants, particularly because they, they both speak English to this day with an accent. So when you hear them speak English, you immediately know that they are foreigners, that they're Latinos. So they're always placed in this category of foreigners, you know, that I'm not because... I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I don't have an accent. As and you have well. uncles and aunts who live in Miami as well, right? I do, I do. I have marvelous uh, aunts and uncles and cousins uh, who live in Miami that I, that I see all the time and that I'm very close to. Uh, it must be terribly disheartening as it is for me to see this anti-immigrant um, rhetoric that seems to be trying to divide this country one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, when I was writing letters from Cuba, it was very much during the time of the immigrant crisis, which of course is still going on, but now we're focusing on on the pandemic. But I was, you know, thinking continually about immigrants and what was being done to immigrants on the border and thinking a lot about children and young people immigrating by themselves, trying to reconnect with their families um, in the United States or help their families back at home in Latin America and how long it takes for, for families to reunite at times that usually um, in these immigrant patterns, you have people who immigrate one at a time and then bring more of the family as they are able to save money and bring, you know, bring everybody and bring everybody right. to be together. So in 1979, you talked about, that was your first trip to, to Cuba and back to Cuba. And ironically, it was a year before Marielle, which is so interesting. Um, so talk about what that year was like for you there when you went back. What was your experience? That's, that's a great question. It was actually, it felt like a hallucination. You know, I went to Cuba in 1979. I was a student. I was a graduate student by then at Princeton. I had gone straight from Wesleyan to Princeton. And you were and, studying anthropology. And I was studying anthropology, which was crazy in itself because I didn't know anything about anthropology and I decided to study anthropology. But, but am I mistaken? Weren't there some interesting Cuban professors in Princeton at the time or was it not yet the time? Um, not really. I mean, I think, I think Alejandro Portes was maybe there right around that time that I was there. He was, he was in sociology. Um, but there weren't a lot of Cubans, I would say. I mean, there was a professor named uh, Jim Irby um, who was studying uh, Cuban literature. So there were a few people interested in Cuba. And that's actually how I went. I went with a group of professors and students from Princeton. It was this one week trip to Cuba. I found out about it after it had already been organized and I went and begged and I said, I must go on this trip. I must, I must, you have to let me go on this trip. No, it's too late. We already have the group formed. And I, I begged and I was able to go and, um, and it was incredible. Um, it was a different Cuba. 
1979, it was uh, Cuba that was, you know, a lot more controlled than it is now even, um, you know, by the government. You, you couldn't leave Havana without permission of the government. So we all went to Havana in a group. We stayed at a hotel. Um, everything was very packaged by the government. We would go hear these speeches. We went to a model farm and saw like, oh, wow, they're doing such great, great work on the model farm. And, you know, so everything was very packaged. But my mother had continued to correspond with the woman who was my nanny and my brother's nanny in Cuba, an amazing Afro-Cuban woman named Caro, who I would go visit in, in my later visits um, up until two years ago when she passed away. And my mother said, you know, I don't know if Caro is still at this address, but, you know, we've corresponded and, you know, she showed me the actual envelope and, you know, here's, here's Caro's address, maybe you can find her. And, and I did, I went and I found her. It was very strange just even getting a taxi that like, there weren't even yellow cabs. There was just like a black, a black car that took me and I went and met Caro you know, who knew me as a child and, you know, who had taken care of me when I was two, three, four years old. And, and that was amazing. Um, and she remembered my whole family and, you know, everything about me. She knew everything about me up until the age of five, but she knew all these things that my mother had never told me. And so it was such a, an incredible experience. And, you know, she had three kids uh, just a little bit younger than me, twin boys and, and a daughter. And I got to know them. She had kept pictures of my family in the same box where she kept pictures of her children. So my history was, was you know, mixed in with, with her history. So that was an amazing experience that made me think, I've got to keep going back to Cuba. This, this is amazing. Um, and and so when, that, were you, at that time, were you also trying to sort of, uh, uh, sort of stitch together your interests in art and in in writing with Cuban culture that you were seeing there when you went, it was were you did that flow naturally from your interest? It it did it did um, you know back at that time I was thinking that I would do my field work you know anthropologists do field work we have to go and be somewhere for an extended period of time and immerse ourselves in in the life of people in an, in another place. And I thought, I'm going to do this in Cuba. And I, and I reached out to some professors. And I was very young. I was in my early 20s because I went to graduate school straight from undergraduate. And I was very young and I was reaching out to professors. And they were a little suspicious of me because at that time, there weren't that many Cuban Americans going to Cuba. Right. So it's like, who is this person? Like, you know, is she a spy? You know, all, all, you know they, they didn't know like whether they could trust me because they had the, the conception that all Cuban Americans are counter-revolutionaries. So, so was I for real or not? But, but nevertheless, the people were very friendly to me. And, but then um, I went back to the U.S. after that one week and then Marielle happened. And after Marielle, 1980, when, you know, 150,000 Cubans left the island, um, then it was much more difficult to go back to Cuba. And I heard from one of the professors I had been in touch with and said, well, you know, we don't know if it's really going to be possible for you to do this research that we talked about. And so, so I, I got the message that maybe that wasn't the right moment to be going to Cuba after Marielle, after 1980. And so that's what led me on this whole other journey where I spent years living in Spain, 
then I spent years, years, three years living in Mexico in a small town in rural Mexico and, um, and kind of took that long journey, I would say from 1980 to 1991, that whole decade was really spending time in other Spanish speaking countries. And then in 1991, when Cuba opened up again after the fall of the former Soviet Union, and Cuba was just kind of going into free fall. Its economy was in free fall and they had to figure out how they were going to survive without all the subsidies that the Russians had provided. That's when they opened up to tourism. They opened up to Cuban Americans. And that's when a lot of us began to go back on a regular basis. And that's when I made a decision that I was going to go to Cuba um, without fear. I was going to go and make it part of my life again, that um, even if there was this embargo against Cuba, I was going to go and reconnect uh, with the island and make it my home again in some way, no matter how contradictory that was going to be. Well, that's, that's great. And, and so let's talk about Handmade in Cuba. And when did you meet Rolando Estevez? And that was in Montanzas. And talk a little bit, was that part of your archeological work or was that, just something that was an interest of yours? No, it was really more, um, when I started going to Cuba in the early 90s, the experience was so emotional. It's hard to describe how that felt. I, I was dizzy, I was having panic attacks. I was, like I said, it felt like hallucinations. It was the sense of past and present merging together. And at first, I couldn't do anthropology in Cuba. I, you know, I was trying to be the anthropologist and observe and take notes, but it wasn't happening. I, I it was too emotional. And I started writing poems. And it so happened that I met Rolando Estevez, Estevez in 1994 at the Havana Book Fair. I had been invited actually to present Translated Woman, my book about a Mexican woman street peddler. And he was, he was sitting outside of the entrance to the convention center where the, Miami, where the Havana Book Fair <laughs> was taking place. And he was selling these beautiful hand-painted postcards that were about a little bigger than a postcard on, on white paper. They were beautiful drawings. And then they had a line of poetry accompanying them. And these were the poems of Dulce Maria Loinas, Sweet Mary Loinas, Dulce Maria Loinas. I had not heard of her yet because I didn't know that much about Cuban literature. I knew a few things, but I didn't know that much. And I saw these lines of poetry that were so beautiful, that were kind of like she's been described as the Cuban Emily Dickinson, you know, just very intimate lines of poetry about solitude, about sorrow, about regret. And... I was t totally taken with the lines of poetry and with the with the beautiful illustrations that Estevez had made, and we started talking. And so I, you know, I told him who I was. You know, I was Cuban American. I was searching for my roots in Cuba, and he looked at me just like so intensely. And then he told me that his family had left Cuba in 1969. His parents and his sister, who was eight, he was 15. And he could not leave Cuba with his family because he was considered of military age. They would not let him out. Mm. So his family left without him, the parents with his eight-year-old sister, Violet, his sister. And when I appeared, he had, he had seen his parents because his parents had actually gone to visit in 1979 
And I tried to get him out then. They had left in 69 and they went back in 79, a decade later. And I said, you know, let's try, we'll try to get you out. He said, no, you didn't take me with you when you left. I'm not going now. And he chose to stay in Cuba. I appeared in 1994. And for him, it was as if I was this long lost sister. I was, there I was, the Cuban American girl, woman coming back and looking for my roots you know, I could have been a sister. Um, and that forged an incredible bond between the two of us. And I told him I was writing poems. By then it was 94. I had been coming back and forth to Cuba for three years. And he goes, well, you're going to have to write them in Spanish because I want to read your poems. And I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to try to write some versions in Spanish of the poems. And that's how our friendship started. And he became a mentor to me in Spanish because my writing in Spanish wasn't that good because I had been educated to write in English, right? And I had wanted to be good at English since that's what I had been told to do from the time I was five, six years old in New York. So I was trying really hard to write in English. And then I started writing these poems in Spanish as well, but they needed little tweaks, you and know, he, because he was at the center of a literary community as well, right? And he was at the center of this literary community because Ediciones Vigia, Vigia Editions, Vigia means like century point or lookout point, and it's it's a it's a space, it's an it's an architectural space in the city of Matanzas, and he was part of this community that he had co-founded. He and Alfredo Saldivar had co-founded an independent press, essentially in Matanzas, where they were making handmade books in editions of 200 copies. And I had the good fortune to meet Rolando Esteves at the book fair where they were selling, at the Havana book fair, where they were selling copies of these handmade books, totally unaware of the incredible you know, monetary value that these books would have eventually. They're making these like beautiful books by hand using butcher paper, to you know to to really make very humble books because initially they had made the books with paper they had gotten from the butcher shops in Matanzas they had gotten brown paper how, how long did. was he doing that for how long did his press so last? that started in 1985 and it continues it started in 1985 and he worked with them till 2014 then he left and decided to form his own independent press called El Fortin. Hold on a minute. Um, and um, so now he has his independent press where he is making his own books by hand because he didn't want to continue working with the group, with the collective. He was the artistic founder of Ediciones Vigia, but he had to leave his own press because he couldn't do the things he wanted to do. Among the things he wanted to do were to make one-of-a-kind books, which he does, you know, so not the 200 copies anymore, but one of a kind unique Artist book. books. Artist books. Or sometimes he'll make a small edition of 10 or 20 copies, a small edition. But he felt that everything was getting too controlled and that they had created a set of rules that were just not letting him, you know, be the independent artist um, that he wanted to be. And so he formed El Fortin with a lot of struggle he was able to get his own space in the city of Matanzas, and he has renovated that space and made it utterly beautiful. And now he is making these books, his, his you know, own unique books. I've been fortunate that 
he continues to make books of my work, uh, both stories, essays, poetry. He's always asking me, oh, what do you beautiful. have that's new? <laughs> and, you know, I was telling Ruth that early on you came into the bookshop and you brought me some of those books. This was so early. I mean, it was in the 90s, I guess. And it was the first time I had seen work that really came from Cuba. And we actually carried some, and I ended up buying most of them myself. You're and lucky really, that you I, did. I, I mean, are they, I'm sure they're in collections all over the world now, I would imagine. They are. They're very yeah. valuable. The Library of Congress has many of them. MoMA has a bunch of them. The Grolier Club in New York, the British Museum. Right universities like the university of michigan has a big collection so what is his life now in in montanzas what is what is he doing now what is his life like does he teach does he is he able to survive just doing this he does he does manage he he teaches uh he teaches art uh in matanzas he has a, a big following in matanzas of young people artists and writers he's also a writer he's also a poet as well as being a visual artist and a book artist, a bookmaker. So he's doing all of that. He is hosting events now at, at his space at El Fortin, socially distant events because he's now right. posting on Facebook. He's like now just gotten into social media and he's creating these books. I just, I last saw him, I was in Cuba the week before the pandemic was declared. I was there the first week of March and I came back with two books that he had just made of my work, actually two different essays that he had created books of small editions of like 20 copies. And, um, and we had a wonderful time and, you know, we were talking about so many different things and about the horrible effect that Trump has had on Cuba and the decline of tourism and so on. Now, are there ways for, for Americans to get these books? Are they distributed anywhere? Is there a way to purchase them? If somebody wanted to, are they being just are they being imported at all? At, at this moment, mainly by me, but um, but I think there's also a book dealer in Uruguay who distributes them to libraries, primarily to university libraries. We should talk again. About, yeah, I would love to be able to carry more of his work in the store. That, would that you? would be wonderful, and he would of course love that. In You've England. done an amazing, beautiful job with this book. In fact. Um, you know, our mutual friend Richard, Richard Blanco says of, of Handmade in Cuba, it's a masterful integration of word and image that is a feast for the senses. And I couldn't agree more. In your introduction, you bring to life Esteva so beautifully mm -hmm. and what drove him to create this collective and to do the work that he does. And uh, that in itself was worth the price of entry for me as this introduction <laughs> because it made me understand what those books really were, what they meant, and the social impact that it actually had. So you did your work very well as an anthropologist, but also <laughs> as a lover of art and, and writing and, and someone who, you know, understands the beauty of it all. Ruth, I could talk to you forever. I mean, I know we could go on and on and on. We'll have to break this into four or five different episodes. But, um, you know, the fact that, you know, you, you're, you, the fact that you're working in this silo, you are really one of the few people that I know who is exploring 
uh, Cuban art and culture in the way that you are uh, from a literary perspective as well. And uh, I can't thank you enough for it. Letters from Cuba. Not only is it a beautiful book, but the illustrations are gorgeous as well. And uh, the, the cover is beautiful. And the cover, the cover is outstanding. I, let me just say it's by John Parra, who is just an illustrator that I really love and admire. And when I saw this cover, I was just in love with it. I think it really communicates the sense of hope that immigrants had when they came to Cuba. And I want to thank my guest on A Literary Life, Ruth Behar. Her book is Handmade in Cuba, and you can buy it at Books and Books. You can buy it at bookshop.org or your local uh, independent bookseller. Ruth, thank you so much for being part of The Literary Life. Thank you, Mitch. It's been really a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. An honor. Thank you.